All right, Ephesians, now that we're out of time. This is a continuation of last week. Next week, we're going to be into the Gospel of John. We're going to do an introduction, and we're simply going to ask the question, what is it that we as a church want to learn, uh, and uh, uh, what it is we're looking to benefit from from the Gospel of John, how we are hoping it will change us and inform us. And so that's what we're going to do next week in the Gospel of John. Uh, But today we're going to continue what we started last week. And Calvary Baptist Church is growing, and one of the challenges with that growth is that there is becoming an ever-widening spectrum of those who, who, who are here. So on one hand, you may have very new believers. I mean, just fresh, all they know is that Jesus loves them and uh, that He is the only Savior and Lord. They've been saved, their sins have been forgiven, but they really don't know anything about Scripture beyond that. Uh, don't know a whole lot about God, what God would have of them and what it looks like to live as a believer. On the other hand, you have those who may be very theologically minded, who have been in the faith for many years and so on. And so I'm charged with the task of feeding everybody. And uh, how do you feed everybody? Imagine having a whole room of people that all have different tastes, and you've got to feed the little baby over here, but then you also got to feed the one with very discerning uh, appetites over there, and it becomes increasingly difficult to provide a meal for everyone. And so not every sermon can be uh, that... Uh, uh, contain that sort of variety. And so sometimes what we have to do is some, some sermons are going to lean a little bit more on the theological end, and sometimes we're going to preach sermons that seem quite basic to some of you. But that's just the reality of the nature of the body, right? We have a variety of people that are part of the body at Calvary Baptist Church, new believers, and those have been around for a long time. Uh, but one of the assurances we can take is as long as it's Scripture, it's all relevant and helpful to all of us, right? And so the last, uh, last week and this week, I just kind of wanted to look at some of the basics, some of the basics about what it is to be a believer. And uh, so this is a continuation of that. And we're going to be looking at Ephesians in just a minute. It's going to be a topical message. Have you ever had somebody tell you, you look just like your father? For some of you, that's a compliment. For others, it's not. Right? Right, Zach? Zach is Justin's son, okay? Uh, uh, you look just like your father. Uh, what is that? Maybe, maybe even not just you look like your father, but your mannerisms are like your father. You sound like your father. You act like your father or even your mother. It's really not unusual for kids to look like their parents or to act like their parents. In fact, you share the same genetics. But beyond that, your parents are the chief influences in your life. And so not only do you uh, look like your, your parents through uh, nature, but through nurture, you actually, again, develop a lot of the same thinking and mannerisms and reactions and so on. Because they are your primary influences in your formative years. And so that's not unusual to see a son or daughter grow up and even pursue the same line of work as their parents sometimes. So to one degree or another, children take after their parents. Now, as believers, we have been adopted into the family of God. But unlike adoptions that we are used to or that we're familiar with, When God adopted us into his family, he did something very remarkable in that he actually gave us his own nature. So that even as adopted children, we then become uh, like our father. We share his nature. And so uh, we're told in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become what? Partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And so, 
as those adopted into the family of God, He actually gives us His very nature so that we too can become like our Heavenly Father. How? Through the influence of the Holy Spirit. So in what sense does the Holy Spirit make us more like God? Well, it shouldn't surprise us that the Holy Spirit, in making us look like our Father, makes us what? More holy. More holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, Peter addresses his audience this way. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And again, that's not something that takes place through human effort. Uh, That is the product solely through human effort. Uh, That is the product of the Holy Spirit that's in us. And so you have the Spirit of God, so begin to look and act and think more like your Heavenly Father. And so Peter addresses his audience as obedient children there. And then he describes just how obedient children should behave. He says what? Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. All of us ought to have uh, three aspects to our personal testimony. And so the last three weeks, we've been dealing with personal testimony through those uh, introductory questions. Each of us should have three elements of our personal testimony. Number one, uh, what was I like before I came to Christ? How did I come to Christ? And how has my life been different since I came to Christ? All of us should be able to answer those questions. Uh, All of our questions will be somewhat similar. Our answers will be somewhat similar when we look at what we were before we came to Christ. All of us have different circumstances that seem to have brought us to Christ, but we are all saved the same way. And hopefully all of us have very similar answers when it comes to what our life has looked like since we've been saved. Why? Because all of us have received the very same divine nature, and we are being conformed into the very same image, that image of Jesus Christ. And so... What Peter shows us here is that God is holy, and so his children should be holy. And they can be holy because he has given them his own Holy Spirit. But clearly, even with the Holy Spirit inside of us, we need passages like like Peter here. We need passages that say, hey, as obedient children, don't behave this way, behave this way. Right? Do you need those reminders? I know I need those reminders. And so we find them throughout Scripture. We need to be reminded that we are children of God. We need to be reminded that our Father is holy, and so we should be holy. We need to be reminded of what type of thinking and behavior belongs to our old life, and what type of thinking and behavior belongs to our new life. We need to be encouraged to pursue holiness. We need to be encouraged to reject immorality. It's for this reason that many, many passages in the New Testament are just written in this very practical way, encouraging the Christian and even correcting the Christian. This has nothing to do with being good in order to be saved. This has nothing to do with uh, earning salvation by your own merit. This all has to do with those who are already saved by grace and absolutely secure in their salvation and accepted by the Father on the merit of Christ alone, now just living that out uh, as those who have been adopted by the Father. And so we don't interpret any of this as a manifesto for what one must do in order to be saved. But this is simply the outworking of the faith of those who are already saved. And so much of the New Testament is written to show us how God's children possessing the Holy Spirit not only are to be different from the world around them, but even different from the lives they once lived. Maybe that's a question we should do some Sunday morning. Tell me how you are different 
from the life you once lived. That would, that would be interesting. And so the Christian, uh, the Christian saved by God's grace is called, as we're going to see, uh, to a not having been saved by good works, but is actually called to a work, uh, a life of good works. Now, Ephesians, Ephesians. We're going to look at Ephesians 5 in a moment, and then Ephesians 2, and we're going to kind of track a little bit, actually jump, jump a little bit around through the book of Ephesians. The Christians in the city of Ephesus were primarily non-Jews. They're Gentiles. These are men and women who lived a thoroughly pagan life in a very pagan culture. Unlike the Christians in Jerusalem, those that were in Ephesus uh, would not have had the benefits or the knowledge of the Old Testament. Those who were in Ephesus would not have had a worldview shaped by biblical morality. They're not familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. These believers came from a background steeped in idolatry and the immorality that always accompanied idolatry. These realities meant that as men and women in these Gentile cities came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord and were transformed by His grace, these especially, these Gentile believers, would need special instruction. They would need guidance in understanding what their new faith meant regarding the change and thinking and lifestyle that God now expected of them as his children. Some of what they had previously accepted as true and moral would now have to be rejected. They would have to learn what aspects of their culture's philosophy and value system were incompatible with Christianity. Beyond this, they would have to learn what positive attitudes and behaviors would govern their lives and relationships as believers. In short, they'd have to learn what it meant to be the holy children of their holy heavenly father. Now, that was the state of the Gentile believers in the New Testament. Holy steeped in immorality and idolatry, adopting a cultural philosophy and value system that was contrary uh, to God's revelation. Does that sound familiar? When we evangelize and when men and women uh, receive Christ as their Savior and Lord in our culture in 2022, do you think they have more in common with the Jews of the New Testament, who were steeped in the uh, Old Testament scriptures, had a fully formed biblical morality and biblical worldview? Or would they have more in common with the Gentiles, who were steeped in idolatry and immorality, having very little knowledge of God's standard or His call to holiness? I think the answer is obvious. And so more and more as a church, as we share the gospel in this culture, and men and women come to the faith, we understand that that then has to be followed with instruction. Okay, this is what it looks like now to live as a believer. This is what's not compatible with your Christian faith. And so this sermon serves that purpose. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, look at what Paul says to the believers in Ephesus. Therefore, be imitators of God. As what? Beloved children. As beloved children. You're the children of God, so imitate Him, your heavenly Father. And so we're going to survey Paul's letter to the Ephesians to see just what type of change God expects. What does it look like then to live as beloved children imitating God, according to Paul, to the Ephesians? So look in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And this describes the state of all of us. I said that we all have three aspects of our testimony. uh, The life we lived before coming to Christ, how we came to Christ, and how our life has changed since. Well, this is a description of the former. Ephesians 2.1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We all once were dead, spiritually dead, 
And we just walked along with the world. Whatever the world was doing, that's what we did. Whatever the world thought, that's what we thought. Whatever the world rejoiced in, that's what we rejoiced in. Whatever the world rejected, that's what we rejected. And what uh, that was really driven by the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan himself. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We're all guilty. This is the background of all of us. We just followed our bodies. Uh, what, did I, what do I want to do? Uh, what do I want to indulge in? Uh, what do I, uh, who do I want to have sex with? Uh, when do I want to engage in sexual activity? Um, all these sorts of things, all those indulgent passions of the flesh, and we just lived in those things, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. It's our very nature, inescapable. It's actually who we were, just like the rest of mankind. So we don't take that personally here. That's a description of all of mankind. Before salvation, we fit right in with the culture all around us. The lifestyle, the value system, characterized by disobedience towards God, orchestrated by Satan, we're all part of that system. According to verse 3 there, this meant living according to our own passions and desires. But then notice verse 3. It says we are once children of wrath. But now we're children of God. We were once sons of disobedience, but now we are what? We are now sons of God. In other words, for those of us this morning who are saved... There has been a fundamental shift in both our nature and our identity. And as we're going to see, that fundamental shift in our nature and identity should also bring about a fundamental shift in our thinking and behavior. Now look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. It says, While we are in that state, captive to our sin, dead in our trespasses, nature, our nature, we had a nature as children of wrath, sons of disobedience, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, wholly undeserving and wholly unable to save ourselves, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He's just pouring blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing for us, and really just punctuating the point that we could never be worthy, we could never merit the blessings that he gives us, and so he's putting his grace on display through the abundant blessings he's giving us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Well, we'll stop there. Not of works, lest anyone should may boast. And so what is that? We're saved by grace, not by works. And so let's get that straight. As we're about to talk about works, we're not talking about works for salvation. But he says, although we are not saved by works, so that no one can ever boast, no one can ever say it's my own doing, it's my own goodness, it's my own merit, it's an impossibility, you were dead in trespasses and sins. But then he says this, not of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, and so he's the one that's recreated us, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Well, what is that? He's created us for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So as much as I want to emphatically say we're not saved by works, And i got to hit that point over and over and over again because we're legalists by nature and so we think that we're good enough and we can earn salvation. i got to keep hitting that and say it's not by works. It's not by works. It's not by works. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. Why? So that no one will boast. But then immediately following, because now God has saved us by grace, His workmanship, now what He has created by His grace, 
are men and women that will now, what? Walk in good works. Walk in good works. This is the outflow, the product of that salvation by grace is actually men and women who now actually do good works. Not saved by good works, but now because we're saved, continuing in good works. Remember that from Titus? Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And so because His grace has appeared, bringing salvation, what? This trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to do what? To redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good works. This is the product of grace. This is God purifying His people. And so on one hand, we are saved by grace. We're never, ever, ever going to uh, alter the message of salvation by grace through faith alone. On the other hand, we also recognize that salvation by grace alone and not by works does not mean then that the Christian is not concerned with works. We are concerned with our character and our thinking and our value system. We are concerned with our morality. Why? Because we are called to reflect the holiness of our holy heavenly Father. And so Jesus gives himself for us, not only to redeem us from sin and lawlessness, but to create a new people who are zealous for good works. As those who have been saved by the grace of God, we should respond to that free salvation by renouncing our former ungodliness, by refusing to live according to our worldly passions. And so we have a new life, a new life to be lived to the glory of God. And this should be a life of what? Self-control, righteousness, and godliness, according to Paul to Titus. And we should do all of this with our eyes set on Jesus, anticipating his return, according to Paul to Titus. And so, as we've already noted, although Christians are not saved by works, Christians are saved so that they will become those who do good works. And as we're going to see... Very, very stark language here. As we're going to see, anything short of a life now pursuing good works as the outflow of our salvation, anything short of that is really unworthy. It's unworthy of the salvation that God has graciously given us. Look at Ephesians 4.1. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And there, it's kind of a shot across the bow. What we're told here is there is a lifestyle that a Christian can pursue that is unworthy of the salvation that they've been so graciously given. And so Paul is saying, I'm urging you. And again, the Ephesians coming out of an immoral society. Okay? I mean, everything present in our culture, and maybe even to a greater degree in Ephesus. And so I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now look in verse 17 of, verse, of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 17 through 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He's saying don't be like you used to be. Come out from among the Gentiles. Come out from that idolatry and immorality, the futility of their minds. Why? Well, because they're darkened in their understanding. The implication being, you're no longer darkened in your understanding. Uh, The implication being, you're no longer darkened in your understanding. It says, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. The implication being, you're no longer alienated from the life of God. You've been reconciled to God. 
You are no longer ignorant. And it says, due to their hardness of heart. So they have a hard heart. You no longer have a hard heart. You have a heart that's been softened by the Lord, and He has planted the gospel there in that heart. It says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What a phrase. What an, what a, what an indictment. Greedy to practice any, every kind of impurity. We've seen this in our culture as the door has opened to sexual deviancy and immorality. That has almost come as this flood now to see what type, what further type of perversion, what further type of deviancy can we uh, take part in. They become greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And Paul's point is, that's the culture around you. That's what you came out of. To do such things is unworthy of the gospel, uh, unworthy of the calling that you have been given. Sadly, sometimes like a fish in water, we have been so immersed in this type of culture that we often fail to recognize the ways in which we've been influenced by it. Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes it takes somebody outside of ourselves to say, hey, listen, your value system here is not compatible with your calling. Uh, Your beliefs here are not compatible with your calling. Uh, The way that you're handling your flesh and your passions is not compatible with your calling. In fact, this area of your life looks more like the world uh, than uh, God's calling on your life. Uh, This area of your life looks more like the culture, looks more like their value system than God's. Sometimes we need someone to help us to see those things, and God has actually given us someone to be with us forever that helps us to continually recognize where we fall short, and that's the Holy Spirit. With that in mind, let's continue to look at how God inspired Paul to instruct the Ephesians regarding this necessary lifestyle change for believers. Ephesians 4.20. He continues right after the passage we just read about the Gentiles, describing them being greedy to practice every kind of impurity. He then says in verse 20, But that's not the way you learn Christ. But that's not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus... Then he says this, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You were made in the image of the world, and now you have been recreated in the image of your Father, the likeness of God. And so put on that image. Put off the former, put on the new. Therefore, and then he gets very specific, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. You used to lie, you used to be a liar, you used to be accepted by the culture to, to, to be dishonest no more. Why? Because that's not how you learn Christ. That's not the likeness of God. It says, For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. It used to be acceptable to react in wrath and to react with a short temper. It used to be okay to hold bitterness, and sometimes the culture would even justify such attitudes. Well, not anymore. Why? Because that's not how you learn Christ. Give no opportunity to the devil through that wrathful bitterness. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Believers, watch how you speak. Watch your your foolish jesting, your foolish joking. Watch your profanity. Watch the things that you say, because your speech ought to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. And so what? But only speak those things that are good for building up, 
as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. I want my words to build up. And then he says this, Be careful to avoid these things, and be careful now to do these things. Uh, Why? Because according to verse 30, remarkably, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He's saying, you have a house guest. The Holy Spirit now dwells inside of you. And we can actually be guilty of grieving the Holy Spirit by whom we have been sealed. How? Well, for the things that he said prior, but also, verse 31, he continues, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And so what Paul is trying to do here is he's laying out, as he often does in the epistles, he's laying out that new ethic that the community, that covenant community of believers is called to. This is the type of character that that ought to characterize God's people. And so not only does he have to speak to the positive, he also has to speak to the negative. And so sometimes as a church, we need these reminders. Put off the old self, put on the new self. Understand there's some things you're thinking and some things you're doing, and that's not the way that you learn Christ. Uh, You need to be conformed to the likeness of God. And that's very practical. And so every Christian, as I said, can speak to three aspects of their salvation. And there ought to be a place in your growth where you can look and say, you know what, I see transformation. The way I used to think, I don't think that way anymore. The things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. Now a song's coming to my head. Uh, things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. Those of you who used to teach children's church when we sang those songs know what I'm talking about. Uh, you say there's a, a past, a different value system, a different way of thinking, a different way of interacting with people. And I've changed in those areas. And so Paul is explicit in stating that the Ephesians' old self is not compatible with their new life or their new faith. Whereas their old manner of life was corrupt, the new manner of life ought to be characterized by righteousness and holiness. Whereas their old life made, uh, was made in the image of sin, their new self is created after the likeness of God. He then goes on to show some very practical ways, and we just listed all those things. Don't be angry, don't steal, watch your corrupting talk, don't be bitter, don't be wrathful, and then instead what? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving. And be careful not to grieve the Spirit. And so according to Paul, again, the Spirit whom God has given to us to make us more holy can be grieved or quenched by our unholy lifestyle. That's important because, we're not going to have time to get into it today, but God has given us means for growth and means for personal change and transformation. He's given us His Word. He's given us prayer. He's given us fellowship with one another, right? He's given us the Lord's table, and the list can go on. And all of those things are actuated in our lives by the Holy Spirit who actually uses those things then to do that transforming and work inside of us. If by our immorality we grieve the Holy Spirit in our lives, we short-circuit God's process of changing us through His means. And so Paul is very careful to say, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Now continue... Ephesians 5. Paul continues, Ephesians 5, verse 1. He says, Therefore, as we've already seen, be imitators of God as beloved children. And this is what that would look like. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. There's a certain behavior that's not worthy of your calling. There's a certain behavior that's not proper for Christians. It's not proper uh, for this community. 
And so collectively as a church, we should all be able to say together with one voice that sexual immorality is not welcome here. And so collectively we say that we are called to a new sexual ethic. And we can say that all impurity is not welcome in our community. And that's not to say we're kicking people out. That's to say that if you're a genuine believer, uh, answer that call to repentance and say, I see it, I'm supposed to be walking uh, in uh, the good works to which God has called me in order to put on the likeness of God, and so I renounce or I repent of those things. So let the genuineness of your salvation be known through that repentance that says, sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness is not to be named among us. It's not proper for saints. And so we speak often at Calvary Baptist Church about a church culture, the type of culture we'd like to see developed at, in this body. And we're quick to say that, uh, I'm not going to speak in the collective, I'm going to speak for myself. I have no desire to be part of a church or even to pastor a church that's growing and busting at the seams while also tolerating a diminished standard of holiness that then tolerates or even accommodates, or even affirms sexual immorality or impurity in our midst. We're not about growth at at any cost, right? And so we pick up with Paul and say, this is what our calling is. We're not saved by works, but the Christian life then uh, living out is to reflect the character of Jesus, and that's incompatible with sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness. must not even be named among us. It's not proper among saints. Then he continues... Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You say, Rick, why are you meddling here? I mean, this is kind of like in, in my face. Listen, Paul is explicitly saying that those who practice these things have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I mean, souls are at stake here. And it's not to say that committing a sin results in damnation. But what it is to say is that those who are continuing in such sin without any conviction of the Holy Spirit really are revealing the fact that their salvation may not be genuine. And the thoughts that maybe they are saved, uh, they're mistaken. And so they will be that Matthew 7 where uh, Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. And so this is serious business. Those who practice these things and continue in this lifestyle, Paul says, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. They're reflecting the fact that they haven't been genuinely converted. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't let anybody tell you, oh, it's okay. No big deal. It's okay. Downplay. No. Don't be deceived, Paul says. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partners with them. And look what he says. For at one time you were darkness. That's your old life. At one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And so now our desire is, Lord, show me how to live for you. Show me what's pleasing to you. Show me what's reflective of your holiness. I, I want to know. And I hope that's your prayer. If you're a new believer or a young believer uh, this morning, I, I hope that that is a prayer for you. Lord, I don't know a whole lot at this point, but I want to know. 
There's areas in my life that have not been transformed. I, I haven't had much time to grow, so just show me. Show me. Help me to know. And so discern what is pleasing to the Lord, verse 10, verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And I think verse 12, since we're very, very practical and we're up in everybody's business already, uh, verse 12, it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. The culture is doing what they're doing. It's not even right to sit around and talk about what the culture is doing. Um, does, does that mean that it's equally not appropriate to watch entertainment that reflects what the world's doing? What if you have actors um, actually um, espousing the world's value system and espousing the world's morality? Does that mean it's not right for believers to entertain themselves with what the world is doing? I would think that that's an appropriate principle from verse 12. It's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk, considering all that he's just said, especially as we consider the fact that those who practice such things have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Look carefully, then, how you walk. Walk, then, being lifestyle. Be careful. Look to your lifestyle. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It's again another repetition of that idea of discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. Understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine. That should go without saying, right, Christians? Don't get drunk, okay? Don't get drunk. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. I didn't say it, Paul did, right? Uh, But be filled with the Spirit. Don't allow yourself to be controlled by your passions, like something like drunkenness. Instead, be controlled by the Spirit. What does it look like, then, to be controlled by the Spirit? Well, he continues, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. I think we did that this morning, didn't we? Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And why would he talk about submitting to one another there in that context? Because in this whole process of spiritual change and transformation and coming out of our old lifestyle and coming out of the culture, we need each other. I need you to remind me what the calling is on my life. I need you to help me point out the things in my life where, you know, this isn't compatible with the new life. This isn't worthy of the calling. We, we need that. We need one another to that end. And so Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, what what are we learning here? Simply this. God's children live differently. God's children think differently. God's children react differently. They speak differently. They relate differently. God's children have a different value system, a different morality, different priorities, an entirely new perspective. In all ways, a Christian has become a new creation. However... As we learned last week, these changes do take place over time, right? This is progressive. Through the Holy Spirit, He changes us progressively and not without our own personal effort. And so that's what we call sanctification. And so this process of sanctification sees us become less and less like our old selves and more and more like Jesus. It sees us become like foreigners to the culture and really peculiar among our peers, 
And this passage in Ephesians, or this book of Ephesians, is just one among many. I mean, you could, you could go on and look at uh, Romans 6 and 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5 and Colossians 3 and uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 and, again, 1 Peter we saw, all throughout the New Testament. And these things help us to understand God's will for our lives and what it means to be holy. And so when we read passages like this, the Holy Spirit helps us. Some of you may be angry this morning as a result of some of those things that we've listed. Some of you just may be convicted by some of those things that we've listed. Some of you may be thinking, I recognize myself in some of those, what I used to be. And you're just overcome with thankfulness for how God has transformed you by His grace. As we grow in the Lord and apply the Scriptures to our lives, always trying to discern how to please the Lord, we will grow. And that change will not go unnoticed. If you're a new believer this morning, have you yet experienced others looking at your life and saying, there's something different about you. You've changed. And maybe some, you kind of take that as a compliment, and they're saying you've changed for the better, but maybe you've also experienced some opposition. Let me show you something incredible about this culture and about our relationship to it. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And Peter's writing to an audience that was going through quite a bit of turmoil. So whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, has a way of weaning us off of our own passions, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The purifying effect that says, uh, I'm going to let go of my human passions, I'm going to live for the Lord. Continues, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Listen, you've been there, you've done that, that's your old life. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now look at verse 4, and this is what's amazing. With respect to this, they, that is the culture around you, those whom you used to uh, 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 really do these things with, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. One of the amazing things about our sinful culture is that it's willing to tolerate and even celebrate just about any form of immorality while being absolutely intolerant towards any who refuse to go along with their sin. In fact, the more gross the immorality, the better I feel about my own immorality, and so they welcome the grossest expressions of immorality. But the culture is willing to adopt and to embrace and to tolerate and to affirm and to promote any form of immorality while being absolutely intolerant of any who would say, I'm, I don't want to have anything to do with that. To the point where they're willing to turn things around and even try to convince you that you are the immoral one. You are the intolerant one. According to Peter, not only are they surprised when Christians do not behave like they do, but they take it further and they malign them defame, vilify, speak evil of those who reject sin and pursue holiness. Do you feel like we're at that point in our culture? The scripture may be thousands of years old, but this is a perfect commentary on our present day. Our culture has shifted so that anyone who holds to biblical morality is now maligned as an unacceptable outsider. Accusations of hatred and bigotry and fear and intolerance are lodged against any who refuse to fly the flag of the culture's new morality. And so traditionalists are now controversial. And what was once mainstream morality is now considered hateful extremism. It's now an act of bravery to come out as a Christian in the West. It's becoming, quickly becoming an act which requires boldness and courage. 
It immediately paints a target on the back of the new believer, a target which grows larger the more that believer grows in holiness. But we don't fear because we understand this was also the case in Ephesus. It was also the, face, uh, the, the, the case in Corinth. The Apostle Paul was writing to men and women who were coming out of such cultures. And the New Testament church that we often look to longingly saying, make us like them, was a church that was born out of such cultures. And so as we grow in the faith and become increasing, it becomes increasingly obvious that we are different from the culture around us. At least it should. Such challenges help us to hold loosely to the world. Helps us to, to really wean ourselves off of the culture that's rejected us. And it helps us to look forward to Christ's coming. It helps us to pray, your kingdom come. And so we can look to Christians in the past who have handled such challenges with grace. We can lean hard on our fellow believers who have also come through such challenges so that together we can do what? According to Philippians, so that we can be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom we shine as lights in the world. And so in conclusion, if you're a new believer, relatively new believer, you've been saved by grace. Not one iota of personal merit or personal effort contributed to your salvation. Jesus Christ is responsible, his merit alone for your salvation. And not only are you not saved by works, but you do not keep your salvation by works. You're in by grace and you're kept by grace. However, those who are saved by grace then see an outworking of that salvation by grace, which looks like holiness. And so that's our calling. There are two sides to the coin of spiritual change. On the one side, according to Galatians, we crucify our flesh with its passions. That's the idea of self-denial, self-discipline, self-control, turning from our old way of living, putting off that old self. On the positive side, we use the means that God has given us to walk according to His Spirit. And so we read His Word with a desire to conform our lives to it. We pray to our Father, learning to confess our sin and to love Him more and more. We develop meaningful relationships with fellow believers and worship them with regularity These things are all called the means of grace. And we avail ourselves to them so that we can become more and more like our Father. So, spiritual change is not only possible, it's the normal course for the believer. It's the normal course for the believer. As I said last week, implied Paul to the Corinthians, the writer of Hebrews, uh, there uh, is an expected rate of change so that those uh, who are new believers, it's expected that at some point they move on from just the milk of the word and are ready for meat. There's an expectation that those who are perpetually just the learners then eventually can become the teachers. And so when we don't see that happen, that's an indication that something's not working properly. The means of grace may not be being applied, right? Sin may not be properly uh, overcome. And so spiritual change is not only possible, but it's the normal course of the genuine Christian because God has granted us his Holy Spirit. And because we have his Spirit, we have everything we need to live a godly life. And so... There is an expectation that we will grow in holiness. And so that growth sees what? A renunciation of the sinfulness which characterized our former life and the progressive development of Christ-like character or the fruit of the Spirit. Although it's the Holy Spirit who is ultimately responsible for changing us, it does not happen without personal effort and discipline. And so let's help each other, right? Let's help each other. And I think tonight as we get together for our evening service, uh, our prayer is that even a service like that is going to help and is going to further uh, our ability to encourage one another through that community of believers. And so if you're here this morning and you are a new believer and this is kind of offensive to you, 
kind of in your face. It kind of press some buttons. Uh, I hope that you will look past me, and I hope that you just open the word yourself, right? Just open the word yourself. I mean, read, read, read Ephesians, read Philippians, read Peter, I mean, and just take it in yourself and just pray. Lord, if there's something here that applies to me, and if you want me to change some things in my life, uh, convict me and have that willingness to discern the will of the Lord, right? And just get in the word. But understand that we have to be ready for the scriptures to contradict us and to confound us sometimes and uh, uh, to help us uh, to fulfill the calling to which God has called us. If you are an older believer this morning, uh, you know, there are some, you have a history of having overcome some of these struggles, right? You've seen God help you through his means to transform you into his image. Be a help to others, please. Be a help to younger believers. Look to younger believers and, and see if you can encourage them. See if you can kind of give them some shortcuts here. Hey, this is what helped me when I struggled with the struggle that you have. Uh, this is how I applied the word in my life, right? Be a help to others. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer, well, this is just completely out there, right? And uh, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, uh, Jesus Christ died for you and he wants to save you. He died on the cross and if you place your faith in him as your Savior, the only one who can save your soul, and as Lord, that is, he's the only rightful authority in your life, uh, you place your faith in him, the Bible guarantees you that you will be transformed. You will be saved. You'll receive his Holy Spirit, and that process of progressive change will begin. But in that moment, you're given eternal life. You're regenerated. You're adopted into the family. All that happens in a moment which is unchangeable, irreversible, but then he also starts this progressive change in your life where you, over time, become more and more like Jesus. So come to Jesus and receive him as your Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, this is challenging, it's convicting. And Lord, I just pray this morning for those who may be sitting there with self-righteousness in their minds, thinking, oh, this doesn't apply to me. I've been saved a long time. I'm not living like this anymore. Uh, Lord, we understand that this process of sanctification never, never ends. And so there's plenty in our lives that uh, we need to see transformed by your Holy Spirit. So we pray that you'll challenge us even in self-righteousness this morning. Help us to see those areas in which we fail, which we need to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And then also, we just pray you give us that assurance that as we pursue personal change, that... Uh, Reassure us that this personal change has nothing to do with our acceptance by you because we are accepted in Christ. And then, Lord, we just pray this morning for those who may be here, maybe young believers, um, who frankly um, may be a little bit on edge this morning, maybe a little bit even offended by uh, some of these things that we read from the Apostle Paul and others. Um, I pray that you will prove the genuineness of their salvation through the response to your word. I pray that they would have a willingness to change behavior, change value system, change morality, uh, to better align with your will for their lives. And in so doing, Lord, I pray that they'd make their genuineness of their salvation known. And help us to be a support. We understand that sometimes these lifestyle changes um, bring incredible shifts in someone's life, even changing relationships and living arrangements and things like this. So help us to be a support uh, as men and women uh, make decisions in their lives to better align with your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us, grow us as a church. And we pray, Lord, we, we reject legalism, reject a works-based system out of hand. But Lord, we also want to be a church that reflects your holiness. So I pray that you would help us always to maintain proper balance 
and help us be proper reflections of your holiness. Lord, we thank you for this and the transforming work of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.